0: Please be aware, if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, you should know that this episode contains the voices and names of deceased persons.
1: There's a big distrust in our communities for media. We know that bad reporting can lead to bad policy, which can adversely affect the lives of First Nations peoples in this country.
2: From even a a, kind of a casual layperson's glance at popular mainstream media, it reveals ignorance. You know, it reveals overt and systemic stereotyping. Uh, There's paternalistic attitudes, there's misrepresentation of history, and all of these things compound the frustration and the distress that's already apparent in a lot of our communities.
1: Mainstream media would never understand because they don't put themselves into a story as we do, because we live this stuff. There's so much assumption that goes on in mainstream media, and I don't think that we should fall back on these old tenets of journalism. We have to remember that the rules of journalism in this country were written by old white men.
3: I think that's why Indigenous media and Indigenous journalists are so critically important, because the storyteller is always the most powerful person in the room. Hi,
0: I'm Amy Thomas. I'm a researcher at UTS. This is Black Stories Matter. It was 1992 when Prime Minister Paul Keating spoke to the mostly Aboriginal crowd that had gathered in Redfern Park in inner-city Sydney.
4: It will be a year of great significance for Australia. It comes at a time when we've committed ourselves to succeeding in the test which so far we've always failed because in truth we cannot confidently say that we've succeeded if we've not managed to extend opportunity and care, dignity and hope to the indigenous people of Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This is a fundamental test of our social goals and our national will. Our ability to say to ourselves and to the rest of the world that Australia is a first-rate social democracy, that we are what we should be, truly the land of a fair go and the better chance. There is no more basic test, I think, of how seriously we mean these things. It's in test of our self-knowledge, of how well we know the land we live in, how well we know our history. How well we recognise the fact that, complex as our contemporary identity is, it cannot be separated from Aboriginal Australia.
0: This was the first time a Prime Minister had spoken about the dispossession, violence and prejudice carried out against First Nations people in Australia. It was a landmark moment in our history, and it put reconciliation firmly on the political agenda. And yet, 28 years after Keating gave his speech, we still haven't passed the test he set for this nation. Today we're looking at what we did get right and where we've failed when it comes to understanding Aboriginal political aspirations and history. Heidi Norman, Andrew Jakubowicz and myself were the editors of the book, Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? 45 Years of News Media Reporting of Key Political Moments. I got involved in this project to uncover the history of how Aboriginal people have communicated their political aspirations and the way that the media has retold these stories through a white lens. The way the media tells and retells stories impacts how we understand or misunderstand Aboriginal worlds and this has real consequences. In this episode of Black Stories Matter, our knowledgeable guests will draw on their extensive expertise in media and government to reflect on failure and hope in Aboriginal political history and what we need to do next.
5: The first Australians still can't have those basic living conditions and human rights that people have in education, employment, housing, health addressed. And I'm angry about it. I think Australians should be angry about it.
0: That was Robert Tickner. He was the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs at the time of Keating's speech. We'll also hear from Jason Ardler, the former head of New South Wales Aboriginal Affairs. He spent the last 20 years advocating for the kind of changes that Keating promised.
2: Policies and practices continue to assault the dignity of Aboriginal people. And this has created trauma and that that trauma is collective, it's intergenerational and it's largely unresolved.
0: And aranda Luricha woman Catherine Little, the CEO of First Nations Media Australia, an experienced journalist in
3: her own right. When you're covering Indigenous affairs, people really have trouble resonating with it. They don't understand it. They just switch off. Today, we're looking at the bigger picture
0: of where we've failed and what the media and government can do in the future. As Catherine reminds us a little later in the program, this is a marathon, not a sprint. To open the discussion, here's my colleague, Emeritus Professor Andrew Jakubowicz. Hi,
6: everyone. My name's Andrew Jakubowicz. Welcome, and I acknowledge we're on Gadigal and Bidigal lands of the old nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, who are with us today or watching from this country and around our white brown land. The project in relationship to Indigenous political aspirations was imagined by Jason Adler and his team at Aboriginal Affairs New South Wales. And it was through their commitment and the perseverance of my colleagues on the project, Heidi Norman and Amy Thomas, in the book, Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? which was published by IATSIS by and Aboriginal Studies Press and is also available as a PDF from uh, Aboriginal Affairs New South Wales online. But I was involved in designing the research and helping write some of the analyses. And also, I had the great honour and interest to carry out the research into the 1992 Redfern speech, and we're going to be focusing a bit on that today. So what I'd like to do now is to introduce speakers to you. We're joined by Robert Tickner, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Minister at the time of the Redfern speech, and through the momentous years around Melbourne. Catherine Little, who's the CEO of First Nations Media Australia, and Jason Arda, the former head of Aboriginal Affairs, New South Wales. I'd like to start with Jason. What was your inspiration for this
2: piece? What What was it all about? Thanks, Andrew. And can I say from the outset that it's really great to be here and and be part of this conversation? As you've as you've said, I, I guess I've been part of the journey of this research and this publication really from its inception. And um, and while I'm no longer the head of Aboriginal Affairs, it is really pleasing from from me to see that the conversation is still happening around this, which was entirely the point, really. I, I guess I've had a, a long-standing interest in changing the dominant narratives in Aboriginal affairs. You know, Anyone who's looked at my bio will know that I've worked in the space now for about 20 years, in New South Wales at least. It's not something that I planned on by any stretch. It was it was really a result of a, a series of put up or shut up moments for me that, you know, where I had the choice to either continue to criticise others for what they were doing or not doing or to jump in and try to make some of the changes that I personally felt were necessary. And, and there's one pivotal moment happened quite early on that I talk about a lot, and that's sitting in a meeting with senior policymakers and practitioners from across government and being quite distressed really about the language that they were using to talk about their relationships with Aboriginal people and and Aboriginal communities. And the language of victim and perpetrator and dysfunctional and, and hard to reach, these words, these phrases were really part of their dominant narrative that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me at all. Certainly not when I thought about my own family and community, which were none of those things. And not when I thought about the work that I was doing at the time in public land management, where we were engaging with Aboriginal communities in in partnership approaches as co-managers and as traditional owners and as knowledge holders. So this, this deficit discourse, this deficit language really struck me as kind of peculiar and problematic and I guess at the time it struck me that that focus on deficits, this idea that we have to fix people up rather than working with their inherent strengths and supporting their aspiration was really the fundamental failure. Of Aboriginal affairs policy in this country and it was doing nothing really to acknowledge or to change the systems or the policies and practices that had done most of the damage in the first place. So that was really the point at which I guess I decided that I was going to make a career out of Aboriginal affairs policy and that my purpose was going to be to push policy outcomes beyond just addressing dysfunction and disadvantage and to build them around the aspirations of Aboriginal people for their futures. I think it's fair to say that we've made some progress in that regard, but some progress in some areas, I would say. It's, it's still quite a fragile thing and it's by no means embedded as business as usual. I think because it's an approach that sits uncomfortably with prevailing attitudes, structures, practices, and assumptions really about Aboriginal people and, and their aspirations. So I became the head of Aboriginal Affairs at the time that there was a change of government here in New South Wales. So the AFL government had come to power and they'd come in with a, a commitment to engage with Aboriginal communities in a genuine way in developing a new Aboriginal Affairs plan for the state. And on the back of that, we undertook extensive consultation with communities across the state, spoke to literally thousands of Aboriginal people and organisations to hear what they said was important to them. And and what came out of that really were three key reform areas that were identified by Aboriginal people as most likely to drive tangible improvements in the well-being of their communities. The first of those was transformation of the relationship between community and government. There was a, a call for a move from this sort of transactional relationship to one that was built on partnership a relationship where communities would have a greater say in the decisions about their own affairs and that that would occur through negotiation and agreement making, that there would be greater investment in community leadership and community capacity to be independent of government, and that there would be greater local accountability for the money spent and the outcomes that were being achieved. The second reform area that people called for was really about economic prosperity, so real economic opportunity in the real New South Wales economy. And the third was about shifting the focus away from delivering services to keeping people out of the service system in the first place. It was really a call for a healing-centered approach. It was about valuing culture, That was about honesty in terms of our history, and that saw in more investment in aspirations than in problems. These things taken together, I mean, they were a pretty radical shift, really, um, or a pretty radical departure from previous Aboriginal affairs plans that had focused almost exclusively on service delivery. I think we were fortunate at the time because we had this new government that had come to power on a platform of local community control, small government, accountable government and economic prosperity. So we had this really nice alignment between what the government was saying was important to them and what the community was saying was absent really in the aboriginal affairs agenda so they became our platforms for reform and and i think what we realized pretty early on in approaching these reforms was that while we had a lot of data and uh, and aboriginal people you know we've been measured to within an inch of our lives by governments and others you know there are literally thousands of pages of data measuring the gaps between us and everybody else what we didn't have was a lot of evidence to inform how to go about delivering on these reforms and the aspirations of Aboriginal people. So it was at that point that we decided that we were going to develop our own research agenda. This research agenda was going to be about us building the evidence that we needed to deliver the reforms that were being called for in New South Wales. And as we pulled that research agenda together, what we also saw, apart from those three kind of key reform areas, it was there were a couple of cross-cutting practices that were going to be fairly critical to our success or otherwise in delivering those aspirations. There were things that we talk a lot about, but we were surprised to see how little literature there was to inform our deep understanding of what worked and, and why. And, and they were things like cultural capability, You know, what was the cultural capability of the public sector and others who are working with Aboriginal communities And what was the nature of the dominant discourse about Aboriginal people uh, in New South Wales and and I guess in Australia more generally. And clearly, these two things are related. You know, the public service doesn't work in isolation of the rest of society. And and certainly in this age of social media, digital media, public policy is increasingly informed by dominant public discourse and and attitudes and values. So it was really important for us to understand these things. And and that's really why this research came about. You know, it was was us wanting to understand how the media reports on Aboriginal polity and aspiration. There were some gaps we needed to fill. There were some assumptions that we wanted to test. I mean, we knew from even a kind of a casual layperson's glance at popular mainstream media, it reveals ignorance. You know, it reveals overt and systemic stereotyping. Uh, There's paternalistic attitudes, there's misrepresentation of history and all of these things compound The frustration and the distress that's already apparent in a lot of our communities. We knew already that ours weren't the dominant voices in our own affairs, that there was this tendency to report our circumstances being our own fault, you know, our our want to hang on to Stone Age cultures or to nurture languages of no economic value, you know, this reporting of lifestyle choices and all of that stuff. So, this was all quite evident to us. Uh, and of course, we saw the, the routine and regular reporting on the trivial debates, really the ultimately trivial debates around whether we should change flags, change dates, change anthems. And I got to a point at one stage where I, was, I had uh, likened the annual Australia Day debate to uh, a test match cricket that had you know, ended in a draw. You know, it came around every summer, made headlines for a few weeks, you know, both sides scored some points, but ultimately, there was no result, and most people left the debate, you know, quite dissatisfied with the outcome. And really, that's why the research was developed. And I recently wrote a piece on dignity in Aboriginal affairs in Australia, and the fact that colonisation and the policies and practices that followed have had and continue to assault the dignity of Aboriginal people, and, and that this has created trauma, and that that trauma is collective. Uh, it's intergenerational and it's largely unresolved. And, and significantly that this trauma is compounded whenever dominant voices deny these injustices or that they were intended to cause harm or that their impacts continue to be felt today. And you know, I've worked a lot with stolen generations and, and I know the impact on them every time a journalist or a politician denies that they exist or imply that somehow their removal was for their own good, you know, this stuff is offensive and it's harmful. We've seen in places, looking at the international experience, places like Northern Ireland, the Middle East, even Cambodia, where These sorts of dignity violations when they're left to fester, when they're not named, when they're not acknowledged, when they're not redressed, they do actually create barriers to our relationship building. They do get in the way of our ability to genuinely negotiate and to uphold agreements. You know, in that context, in the context that we find ourselves in today, how do we then realise Aboriginal people's aspiration for a more positive and truthful relationship with our country and with our political leadership? How do we get to a point of negotiating treaty in that context? So given all of that, given our aspirations to be heard, to be understood, to feel like we belong, to be able to express our genuine identity and cultures without fear of negative judgment, and how often this isn't afforded to us by the mainstream media, these were really the the drivers for this research. You know, how do we understand this? How do we understand what's behind this?
6: Jason, thank you very, very much for that. That's um, a very uh, moving and and serious setting out of where we are in all of this. Maybe, Robert, if I can bring you in now. Robert Tickner was the the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Affairs during that period from about 1990 to 1996, the second half of the Labor-Hawk-Keating government period. You had a significant role really significant role in building relations between Torres Strait Island people and the federal government. When the Redfern speech was given in 1992, what was your sense of the way in which the media dealt with and what were your positive and negative responses?
5: Uh, Thanks, Andrew. I guess I should say at the outset that what I bring to the table today is not a, I guess, an academic perspective, but a very um, battle-scarred perspective of someone who was very much deeply engaged with the media in all its facets during the six years that I was a minister. And, you know, my task was to do the best I could for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that meant I really had to try and work with the media as best I could. In response to your question, I've got to say that the Redfern speech and its coverage overall was extraordinarily positive. And the fact that Paul Keating made the speech that he did really brought home to the nation in a way that no one else could. The true history of our country in very significant respects, it helped us to come to terms honestly with our own history as a nation. Importantly as well, the Paul Keating, in some ways, set a high bar or lifted the bar on himself and the government as a whole by really linking the success of the reconciliation process to just outcome in relation to Mabo. And that was enormously helpful for people like me in the government who from day one, you know, were obviously determined that we try and bring about a really important just result in this once-in-two-century opportunity we had to right this enormous wrong.
6: How do you think the media have gone from that point to where we are now?
5: I do believe that there should be far greater efforts on the part of our media to hold governments accountable for their promises to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. When the governments of Australia, every premier, wall-to-wall, c to c right across this country, every chief minister and the national leadership, prime minister and opposition leader of this country are committed to closing the gap, I think that the media should be asking the really tough questions about the track record, sadly, of both sides of politics, some maybe more than others, by then closing the gap. And if you go to the parliamentary library briefs, prior to the last federal election about the expenditure commitments of both major political parties, you'll be scratching to find even the most rudimentary and minimal additional commitments for governments to close the gap. So to me, I'm not surprised that we've made negligible or no progress on employment. In some areas, it's got much, much worse. We've still got that incredible gap in health and lifespan. But, you know, all our leaders are committed to changing this. So I say to the media, turn up the wick, put the blowtorch to the political bellies and, and hold our politicians accountable to a far greater extent. I think for me, I become very animated, very overwhelmed and, and uplifted when I see tremendous things in the media that educate non-Indigenous Australians and help to empower Aboriginal people. And, you know, there's some fabulous things that inspire me. So I don't want people to think that I'm a prophet of doom and gloom. I'm an optimist. I've always believed that we can have a just reconciliation in this country, but we can't have a reconciliation without the justice. And um, I hope I'm, as an individual citizen, still committed deeply to that and trying to do my best to put my shoulder to the wheel as best I can on those kinds of issues.
6: Stan Grant, in the previous forum, suggested that it wasn't the media's role to advocate for Aboriginal interests or perspectives, but do you think it is the, the media's role, in a sense, to defend white interests? Do you think that's still part of the story, that when Indigenous interests look like they're about to grab Rather more effectively than perhaps they have in the past, there's a reaction by the media against that, or are they simply reporting the reaction by conservative white Australia to those aspirations?
5: Well, I think it's not just a case of reporting on attitudes. You know, we mustn't forget that there are some very powerful economic interests that are often in potential conflict with Aboriginal people. You know, in my personal belief, there are ways around that conflict if corporations change their behaviour, truly respect Aboriginal aspirations and negotiate open-handedly with Aboriginal people and ensure that there are real outcomes for communities and individuals if, and I say if, Aboriginal people support mining. But, you know, when I first became the Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs, there was hardly a mining company in Australia in the early 90s that wasn't riding roughshod over Aboriginal people in in many areas. And Normandy Mining was one of the companies that was trying to do the right thing in its negotiations with Aboriginal people. And I do think that when those voices speak... You know, they're very well-connected voices, you know, from the big end of town. You know, they have very close relationships with sections of the media. And, yes, I think their voices are often disproportionately heard and sometimes are like a bit of a battering ram to attack Aboriginal aspirations.
6: Just as you were speaking, I was just tempted to remember Rio Tinto's extraordinary behaviour in Western Australia over the last few months. Um, and wondering whether a change in viewpoint has in fact permeated the minds of corporate Australia or do they still take every opportunity they can to get away with whatever they can?
5: Look, I think it has changed. I think it's changed a lot. I don't think it's changed to the extent that I would like. And, you know, Rio Tinto is an interesting um, case study because they did go through a massive shift in their attitude when the Native Title Act came in and before that period, you know, they started to treat Aboriginal people in Australia much better than they had ever done before. And indeed, if you compare the treatment of Rio Tinto and Indigenous people in other parts of the world, often it's been much better than they've treated, not always, but very often much better than Aboriginal people have been treated in Australia. But the last month or so has been a period of real setback Um, and, um, you know, I can see that, you know, in the papers in the media recently, there's potential more um, conflict looming on that horizon. Aboriginal heritage protection is something I know a lot about, um, having been through the heritage protection declaration in relation to the Todd River, the Alice Springs Dam, and, you know, the very challenging issue of Hindmarsh Island, where I was ultimately <coughs> vindicated. But uh, while I was the minister at the very end of my time, I commissioned Elizabeth evett our esteemed international jurist, to do a review of the heritage legislation and her report um, sat on a shelf after uh, the government, the law was in lost office and um, it's worthy of examination because the heritage legislation in Australia protecting Aboriginal interests is in some cases from a horse and buggy era. It is so inadequate and... um, we need to do much better than, than we do with it. I think if I can say that as a non-Indigenous Australian, I always said that being Minister for Aboriginal Affairs was the best job in Parliament House, aside from being Prime Minister. And I, and that said, I mean it, and, and but that sentiment is also something that I want to transpose to Aboriginal science. If you, as a non-Indigenous Australian, look to aboriginal rock art you know you're looking at this great gift this wonderful legacy to all the people of australia and aboriginal australians must be so proud that they are the the custodians that that those who have given us this gift but we really have to do a better job of protecting aboriginal heritage we would never permit non-indigenous heritage interests to be dealt in the same way as Aboriginal heritage still is dealt with to this day.
6: Just to make making a sort of comment, when I was researching the Redfern speech, Keating basically didn't want to talk about it, which we we understand. Uh, but Don Watson, who who actually wrote the words, intriguingly said to me that it was really the Aboriginal worldview that he channelled into Keating's mouth, which Keating then read without change. No mention was made of this in the media of the day, though a key person, a man who chose the Redfern site and framed the first drafting of the speech, was on stage to introduce Keating, the late Saul and Belair. And before the, this uh, Zoom, Robert Tickner um, informed me that he and he and Saul used to share a, a house in Redfern. So I think it's My uh, dear friend, the late Saul Belair.
5: I'm just going to say one other thing. I once um, had a conversation with the late Tom Uren that many people may know, uh, this wonderful former Member of Parliament who um, was a great campaigner for human rights all his time in Parliament. When I talked to him about the Redfern speech, he never had one of of doubt or ambiguity in the way that he thought about that speech as a veteran MP who'd given his whole life to the public and to the to people of Australia. And he said that when a member of parliament, when a minister, a leader, political leader, seizes on some words and adopts the words as their own, it is them that has the moral courage, the integrity, the leadership to give that speech. It is a Keating speech. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that was my profound view and I really think it was a, a wonderful uh, contribution to our, to our country and I know that if Tommy Wren was sitting beside me today um, he'd be doffing his cap to Paul Keating on that one too.
6: It's not disputing the quality of of Keating's belief or understanding or commitment or delivery. It's really a question of how did the ideas get formed and I think it's interesting that it was in the Tracker magazine of the New South Wales Land Council, 20 years after the speech, that we find really the first detailing of the dynamic that actually led to the speech and the form of words that it was there. And Johnson, Brian Johnson, the, the late Brian Johnson, who was a journalist on that Tracker magazine, uh, completed his article about Solombelea and this story by saying the final words and sentiments may have been a mixture of Keating and Watson. But song was clearly responsible for the soul. Catherine, is this why Aboriginal media are so important that they understand the soul of the issues, whereas the white media do not? Is that what drew you to local Indigenous media?
3: That speech and that moment in time—it was such a tipping point, wasn't it? I, I, I remember living through it, and uh, and I was—I wasn't very old. Um, <laughs> um, I was probably in my last couple of years of high school, and you know, I was away at boarding school, and all my friends' parents were losing houses because there was a recession. On simultaneous to that, there was the Mabo conversations, and people really, really did not get what was going on. And, you know, any any room that I walked into, and bearing in mind there were not a lot of Aboriginal people in boarding schools back in those days, I would be set upon by parents who were well-meaning. They're You know, I'm in their home, I'm sleeping over, I'm being fed by them, I'm being looked after by them. And they'd want to ask these questions. Why do you want our houses? Why are you trying to take our houses away? And trying to frame that as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, 19-year-old, really, really hard to do. Um, because, you know, I'd say to them, well, we don't want your houses. We don't want your houses we want you to acknowledge that we want our own houses but we also want you to acknowledge that all your land and all your wealth has happened because you're based on on our country and you the opportunities you've had have come at our expense and the um the problems that we're having you know you as a as a descendant of colonization may not have been directly responsible for but you're a part of a bigger story and I think part of that problem was that people could not see that story. So, yes, soul is part of it uh, because to understand what's happened in that space and, of course, the reason you move into Indigenous media is that people can't see that bigger picture. Uh, you can't see it because you didn't live it. If you if you weren't born into the Stolen Generations camp, you might not have ever known that it existed. Again, for someone like myself, I grew up with stories of the bungalow. So, you know, Alice Springs my grandfather was taken away um, as a young man and all his life he talked about his time in the bungalow. And my ma- my grandfather was a remarkable man, absolutely remarkable man, never complained about anything, not even dying of cancer. The only thing he ever took for that pain was Panadol, never whinged. But his last sort of most formative words to me uh, when they removed his stomach and his throat and he knew that pretty much it was all over, you know, he, he's looking out from this bed and he says to me, oh you know, Catherine, that bastard had blue eyes. And I said, what bastard, grandpa? He said, that bloody bastard that took me away from my mother. And I said, oh, he had blue eyes. He said, yep, I see those blue eyes every time I close my eyes. I see those blue eyes every time I think of my mother. And I think to myself, and and the pain on his face, it was palpable. Why did they do that to me? I was a little boy. I was clinging to my mother. I was crying. Why did they do that? And he goes quiet for a little while and I thought he'd forgotten about it and he wakes up again and uh, he says, I cried every night, you know, cat. Every single night I was in the bungalow, I cried for my mummy. And to this day, I do not understand why you would do that to a child. Why would you do that? So you see me putting soul into that. I'm putting emotion into that. And that's the problem we have as storytellers is if you do not have that soul, if you do not have that story, if you do not have that empathy, if you do not have that viewpoint, you actually can't feel it. And again, I think that's why Indigenous media and Indigenous journalists are so critically, critically important, because at any point in time, the most powerful person in the room right now, it's me. I'm sitting here crafting this story. I have the ability to change your mind. I have the ability to make you cry. I have the ability to make you happy. I have the ability to motivate you. The storyteller is always the most powerful person in the room and that is what soul gave to Keating in that speech. That is what the writers gave to Keating and that's what Keating brought to that space. He brought the power of perspective, the soul of the humanity, the resonance that really framed an incredible point in time.
6: So talk to us a bit about your own involvement in Indigenous media. Like where where is it going today? What's happening? How is it dealing with the sorts of issues that are on the table, the sort of thing, for instance, that Robert talked about and mm. and Jason mentioned.
3: Yep. So look, I think at this point in time there are there are a couple of really, really critical things happening. You know, we're in the middle of a of a COVID crisis, one of the things that, uh, and I think Robert touched on this in particular, and and it does resonate very closely with what Jason had to say, and that is when you think about media and what it means to the world and how it shapes society, it actually isn't easy to measure. It isn't really easy to understand how the role of media is absolutely critical to well-being and how that well-being impacts on your life outcomes. And that doesn't matter if you're Aboriginal, doesn't matter what nationality you are. Media actually has a significant impact on your ability to understand how to operate into the world, how to feel pride, how to be informed and how to be a genuine global participant. So at this moment in time, what we found was a niche actually for the First Nations media sector. And it was a point in time that we haven't had open to us for a very, very long time. And that is all of a sudden all the things that we've been talking about, and that is you need our voices. We need to be able to communicate to our mob. We need our leaders to be able to influence our communities. We need to inform our communities with the information that they need in a perspective that they understand and a language that they understand, and in a a way that communicates the concerns that they have that is different from any of the national messaging you've got on. But- this was that point in time where we could go in there and say, guess what, Imog, you just came up with this massive communication strategy at the national level and another one that disseminates slightly into regional areas, and this is fantastic. You've done this wonderful job of actually engaging Aboriginal media makers into this space, but guess what you forgot? You forgot your grassroots community organisations. They are the ones with their fingers on the pulse. They are the ones in touch with their communities. And we were able to really mobilize the sector and really show the value of that sector and um, convince the government to put more funding into that space for this period of time. What they found and and what we were able to demonstrate in just a snapshot within three or four weeks, 500 different examples of the diversity of content and stories um, and paraphernalia that Aboriginal media organizations were able to make and distribute to their communities. And you'll note across Australia, our sector and our communities actually were able to respond a lot quicker and a lot faster than many of the other communities that were struggling to get messages through. And that was actually the ability to tell stories in our own languages and with our own mediums. So there's that. So that's, that's been for us a really critical point in time for the First Nations media sector. We now have a point in time that shows an incredible value point um, and we'll need it going forward. But the other thing that happened, of course, was Black Lives Matter. And again, for our sector, hugely, hugely important because our sector actually did emerge out of, you know, a lot of goodwill and a lot of advocating and a lot of fighting from from our activists. And they were activists, you know, they were pounding their fists and they were pounding the pavement. But it also ties directly to the Royal Commission into Black Deaths and Custody and that finding of well-being. We need to be able to see ourselves. We need to see success stories. We need our voices. We need some level of self-determination that frames our stories from our perspective, brings our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our challenges as we see them. So we're heading into this. Our sector is already absolutely hurting from the impact of COVID. You know, some of our organisations run off about $80,000 a year. Some of the bigger ones are running off $200,000 a year, and that's a big one. So the ability to get out and have a a laptop, really difficult. Microphones at work, really difficult. How are you going to do your remote monitoring when your organisation has been closed off and you can't get in there? All these really complicated things are happening. Then Black Lives Matter happen. And we know that as a sector, our mob are hurting, really, really hurting. And this is where the responsibility of media comes in, because we know that if our journalists are hurting, their ability to frame their stories in a way that supports the community responsibly is potentially stretched a little bit too far because there is a huge responsibility in reporting on these things because you can do more harm than good if you don't show the full story and you can hurt yourselves um, because these things that are hurting they hurt us as journalists and they hurt us as media practitioners and this incredible stress and responsibility is put onto these media organisations to make it resonate but also to make it informative and then also to understand that what we're looking at when we see moments in time like these is they're flashpoints awesome because where you have a flashpoint you have a point of disruption and potentially a lever but this is a marathon not a sprint so it's about now mobilizing our sector to make the most of this point in time and say okay team mob How are we going to use this point of time to continue to reshape and reframe what we're seeing? And again, if if you look at it from an observational point of view, and and I'll use my own observations and someone who's lived through numerous points of time like this one, is we often get a really good response um, and there's overwhelming support and then in comes the sideways slap. Right. So you know, all all you all your mob who went out there and protested, you're responsible for the spread of COVID. Right? Where was the evidence to back that up? Didn't happen, not true. But getting those messages through, not quite the same thing. So it also gives us a point in time now where we can actually start potentially uh, working with other media organizations to say, listen, what's different about how we saw this point of time? To how you saw this point in time, and how can you use that to move forward? And what we're finding is there are a lot of media organizations across the country who are looking to understand this because, by default, if you are, again, getting back to that soul part, if you are not an Indigenous person, you may be aware that there is a level of unconscious bias in your viewpoints and your writing, but that's the point, isn't it? It's unconscious. So you don't necessarily know how to identify it or how to move past it so that you get the information that shapes a full and comprehensive story. So we, we are sitting at a point in time where conversations like this potentially can be really, really transformative. And again, if I if I look at say COVID and I look at the housing complexes in, in Melbourne and, and I won't use an Aboriginal example like this, I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate how it works probably in a broader context but I remember sitting down watching the TV like everyone glued to the latest in COVID and there's this story comes up and I'm pretty certain it was the ABC and this is not a name and shame thing. This is just, this is, you know, our national broadcaster that it should be the epitome of everything that we see. And they're giving viewpoints of people who are within those within those towers and the images of people locked up, uh, can't get to my mum. But the, the sentiment or the feeling coming to me as a viewer is one of you might be just whinging um, you're dealing with something really crazy here and you need to suck it up and take one for the team right that's that's what's coming through to me as a viewer that's how I'm interpreting it and it occurred to me as I'm looking at it that is very similar to what we experience as Aboriginal people when they tell our stories they've got us uh usually at times when we're under stress like anybody under stress our frontal lobes are, you know, they're firing in all different directions. We're never as coherent. We're never as good as uh, at connecting the dots because we're stressed. And then you framed it in a way that puts us in a deficit. And I was looking at those towers and I was thinking about what I know about those housing complexes. And I know that within those buildings sit families who are dealing with complexities and pressures that we could, ne- most of us could never, never understand. Um, you know, there are families in there that potentially have large autistic children. You know, autistic children in their in their teens who are strong and powerful and have significant problems regulating their own behaviours, and they can't get outside the building. So, what does mum at four foot seven do when her fourteen year old son goes, you go, you loses it because he can't understand why he can't get out that door because his routine's been disrupted? There's the humanization of it. Where are the leaders? Uh, where, Why hasn't the media gone out to the leaders who are actually trained to be able to pull these stories together, pull the different pieces of the puzzle together so that it makes sense even under duress because without fail you find the, the genuine leaders of those communities and they will say we are supporting our communities to understand what is happening this is the support we require in order to be able to do that effectively and the conversation starts changing and you see what is actually a really responsible community dealing with something really really difficult.
6: Catherine? Can I come in there because we've got some questions starting to come and one of them talks directly to this. Over the last few days, you will have seen that the media diversity people have put out this report on the lack of diversity amongst people working in news and journalism in the Australian media. And one of the responses from Channel 9, I think it was, was that they would love to employ more people, particularly from Indigenous background, but nobody applies for jobs. So it's it's all that sort of stuff. This is not a new conversation, right? I mean, this has been a conversation going on for many decades. Is it more sensible for Indigenous journalists and writers and creatives to insist on gaining access to mainstream media where they will fight an incessant uphill battle to try and have their perspectives and emotional take on the world accepted, right? Um, Or is it better for them to direct themselves into Indigenous media where the environment is far more supportive and where they can excel in pushing the limits of their own culture and consciousness?
3: The answer is both. And it's very, very subjective as to who you are and what your battle is. Perhaps most the, the most famous incident um, is that of the Adam Goods debacle. Mm-hmm. And you look at the role uh, media played in how Australians responded to that, particularly in the first instance. What I see when I look at it as someone who spent a lot of time framing conversations and trying to get people to understand different ways of looking at what unconscious bias looks like. So there's Adam and he's standing up in front of a whole heap of journalists and they just go for him right they go for him and for me as an Aboriginal person I feel very culturally unsafe watching that to think that those people in that scrum they're like peers they're people that I probably respected or would be mates with if I was out in the scrum with them uh, and yet they're not talking about the adverse reaction and what the impact of that was they're talking to him about his behaviour and yet he's standing there and he's so noble actually he's so noble and he's so measured and then you look at the images they use to frame those stories you know what we know again as media professionals is there is a responsibility of the journalist when they go out there to be balanced in their question and to understand the whole part of the story let's be very very clear this was the aboriginal round if there was one point in time to throw a boomerang that was it. And if you threw a boomerang, imagine what all the Aboriginal people in the crowds were doing. Man, they were standing up and they were cheering. This is monumental. This is life-changing. You know, this is this is a moment of great pride for us, right? So there's the journalist not seeing that. But who's behind the journalist? Well, there's a chief of staff and there's an editor who've said, when you go out there, ask this question, this question, and this question, right? If you're looking at the uh, actual coverage of the game itself, there are i don't know how many cameras probably there's a significant number of cameras operating and there's a studio director and there's a producer behind them and they're all picking what pictures to pick up on and what pictures and faces to frame right so whoever's doing that is responsible for you responding to how the crowd is reacting. So if the crowd is reacting like this, there's actually a camera operator and a producer and a director behind those scenes. So there are multiple, multiple layers that need to be addressed. What we know is those layers start changing once you start getting Aboriginal people into leadership positions, where they can actually disseminate that. And then what you get coming up underneath Aboriginal leaders are more Indigenous staff. Get back to the cultural safety part. You feel safer if you have an Indigenous person that you can respond to. That doesn't mean um, Indigenous leaders aren't challenged because you've still, particularly in a commercial setting or a mainstream setting, you still have to meet your KPIs. You still have to get your ratings right. And these things are challenging and they have to happen and leadership is tough. But you will find more and more people emerging and that's what you'll see at NITV where those new journalists are coming up and growing, that's because you've got Indigenous leaders at the right levels um, and they're able to push that and they're able to grow their cadets into journalists and those journalists into media leaders. So there's absolute space for that. But when you get back to community media, it's awesome because guess what? All the rules disappear and you can tell any story you want, anyone (laughs) you want, and when you do that, you get diversity Great.
6: Thank you so much. We've got a, a range of questions coming in for, for all the panelists. And I'll, but I'll kick off with one for Robert, perhaps. In your book, Taking a Stand, you noted Australia is not yet ready to reach a negotiated settlement with the Indigenous people of the land until at least there is a binding commitment to address seriously the non negotiable social justice agenda. You've made that point today as well. In light of the federal government's response to the Uluru statement, do you still believe this to be the case? And what role does modern day media have in communicating a more progressive social justice agenda to advance the interests of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people?
5: Well, the first thing to say is that I just cannot fathom and cannot believe that a country as comparatively globally rich as Australia is can continue to strut its persona in the global world with hanging over our heads this disgraceful outcome that the first Australians still can't have those basic living conditions and human rights that people have in education, employment, housing, health. It just staggers me. It beggars belief and I'm angry about it. I think Australians should be angry about it. You know, our governments can do all manner of things, from you know, major construction projects, setting up complex institutions, but to get this, these fundamentals for our country addressed is just not happening, and it's not happening because, until now, no Australian politician has, and Prime Minister in particular, has really grabbed hold of this issue. And If it happens to be Scott Morrison... Um, And if the great work that Pat Turner has been doing with our Prime Minister and the Government works out and the Government drives this and gets the Premiers to drive it, I can tell you the change will happen and and quickly. Premiers and Prime Ministers can do that. They can lead and change our country for the better. But I want to see this as a cross-party commitment so we don't have this stop-start funding when we have changes of government, whoever gets in. Look, I do think that this is quite a fundamental uh, issue and I do also believe that the media has a real role here, Um, not in some partisan blinkered participant in arguing the case for Aboriginal rights. It's simply holding up politicians to account. They've said they're going to do it, but you won't make these deep changes unless significant resources are applied. I think that um, there are lots of areas where the media can do more uh, to hold our parliamentary parliaments and our leaders to account. The Uluru statement that was mentioned is another example. I mean, a first-year student of law at any academic institution in the country would know that setting up an advisory voice to Parliament is in no possible way a third chamber of parliament. And it's unfortunate that Malcolm Turnbull um, did not respect the considered communication that was sent to him uh, as the custodian for the Australian people before ruling it out, apparently for some internal party reason. So I guess that's my best answer to that question. The media can play a very constructive role on these issues.
6: This, this question is going to, to Jason. In a book by uh, Sarah Madison, The Colonial Fantasy, she argues that um, basically settler society like Australia cannot solve the problems of colonialism from inside itself, um, that settler, that it's got to be located outside in the hands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That is, more or less, that without Aboriginal sovereignty, the future of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the country is doomed to a replication over and over of the sorts of dismissal that they've experienced in in the past. That is, you you can't reach an agreement with people that you don't recognise. What's your feeling about that?
2: Um, My suspicion is that it's correct. There's plenty of good evidence coming. Certainly, I mean, there's the well-known, the the famous Harvard study that looked at Indigenous self-determination and concluded that, you know, more often than not, indigenous people will outperform government and other decision makers on a whole range of issues that go to their economic development their management of natural resources their broad health and well-being uh, similarly we've had work in australia You know, when we've seen good outcomes, it tends to be where there's strong governance in Aboriginal communities, good leadership that is taken seriously by and comes together with good governance within government. And so there's good governance of that relationship. The evidence is in that Aboriginal people, you know, that old saying, we know what's best. Uh, We have the solutions for many of the issues that we face, that we're just not often given the voice. You know, I've sat around enough working groups, task force, steering committees, etc., within government policy think tanks. And and it's often a case of governments wanting to start with, you know, who are the people we need to talk to and and what are the new programs and policies we need to develop? And too often, very often, the answers to those issues are, are already being dealt with within communities at the local level. Um, but that's not where we start. We don't go there first and we don't back in the good work that's happening there because you know, we've got to have the evidence base for what's working and, and often the evidence that we find in those community settings isn't the kind of aren't the kind of widgets that governments like to be counting. So so I suspect that's I suspect that premise is right. Mm. Well, I'm
6: just reminded as you were speaking, just before Fairfax was sold to Channel Nine, which was just after the Uluru statement came out, there was a big feature in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think, with a wraparound picture of the Rock, the whole thing, in which the the Fairfax organisation said we are now committed to realising the aspirations of the indigenous communities espoused to Uluru, and then they got sold to Channel Nine, and then it disappeared. Is it feasible? that a, a broad consensus could be achieved with the mainstream Australian media that the call for walk with us, which is the, seems to me is the heart of the Uluru request or the Uluru aspiration, should be taken on as a fundamental moral position by the Australian media? Or is that an aspiration that is impossible to realise? Start with you, Robert, and then come to Catherine, come back to Jason.
5: Well, yes, it is possible, and there's a precedent for this because when I was trying to put together the structure and uh, sort of principles behind the reconciliation process back in the early 90s, not only did I negotiate with Aboriginal people, um, with the ATSIC commissioners, the Federation of Land Councils, that was critical because without that support... I wouldn't have taken the concept forward. I also went directly to the editorial writers of every major Australian newspaper. And I went to their door, arranged appointments, went to see them, told them what it was involved, sold it to them, and, you know, I still have copies of the editorials from the papers. They actually got behind it. And as a result of that, I believe, And the wider support, it actually got the coalition um, to endorse the initiative, um, which was pretty unprecedented uh, at that time. Unfortunately, that support uh, fell away after Labor lost office. Um, You know, I don't speak ill of John Howard. um, A big opportunity was lost there. But the media can get behind something like this. We can do this. Inspire people. Win hearts and minds. You know, that there is something bigger in all of this than, you know, those who are merely passing through this mortal coil at this time. This is for future generations as as well as, you know, righting the wrongs of our own country
6: here and now. Catherine, what's, what's your perspective on this?
3: I think there's some really low-hanging fruit, actually. This is something that's really easy to do because they all have wraps and they all have planning calendars and they all have rounds. And you just need to tie those three things together. Um, and that is, you know, you have a round and that's that's what it is. Um, and it's 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 about will show us over the next 12 months how you're going to map out your work with us stories, what they look like across. All your media platforms, so that you're genuinely driving this discussion and driving the depth of, uh, of the conversation. Just see how much transmedia traction you get on that, um, because that opens up your Twitter worlds and it opens up your digital worlds as well. And that's how you really get movement. And then, you know, and then you go simultaneously. You're going to be hitting your KPIs for your general delivery of stories against around, but you then tie it to your wrap, which means that you're actually getting evidence that you are genuinely getting some tangible results that potentially are changing the way Australians are able to engage and understand uh, their role in reconciliation and just seeing our stories and our communities and our people as, as full human beings with this really rich history and rich future.
2: Thank you. And Jason? Yeah, look, I, mean, I agree with all of that. I, I guess I'm less qualified to talk about the media than I am about Government and public policy making. So, if I, I bring that lens to it, the question that r- arises for me always is how do you make it stick for the long term? You know, moral issues can be a motivator for change and reform and, and drive public policy, but, you know, it tends to be a game of compromise. And so it doesn't always stick. And so the question for me becomes. What is the other compelling argument that buys into the bigger agenda that will transcend the compromise that parliamentarians and, and policymakers make? So, you know, the idea that if we can resolve some of these issues, it's actually good for the economy. Costs will go down, revenues will come up for the government. That's a good news story. You know, uh, you, the environment. You only have to look at the the way people have got on board around um, fire management in the wake of the bushfire crisis. In a way, we would. Not have seen before that crisis the question is what will sustain that in an environment where we're we're fixated on what's wrong and rather than you know what's possible that's my worry i absolutely think it's possible i'd like to be optimistic my question always is what will make it stick
6: so we're now looking towards the future right? i mean you're all pointing towards the future that we have to have to engage with one of the questions that come up and it's directed towards catherine is Well, what does this mean in terms of the training of journalists, not only of Indigenous ones, but of non-Indigenous journalists in universities and such like places?
3: Uh, I think one of the things that... I noticed in my time as an active journalist and an active editor was that the you know we know that our journalists are some of the most competitive creative talented people in the country and they have this incredible ability to look beyond what is there and yet it becomes hard when you come to Aboriginal stories, because people don't really know how to look outside the box. Uh, A simple example of that would be, say, for example, uh, when you can't show images of deceased people, this really challenges people. And yet you're the most, some of the most creative, clever people in the country. So in some ways, I think there, and and again, I haven't done one of these courses and I don't know what's currently Mm -hmm. on offer, but it is about understanding how can you tell stories that don't sit in the norm? How do you challenge perspectives uh, and how do you look for the bigger story and how does it resonate and obviously there'd have to be a few awesome case studies and you'd have to have a few awesome presenters who can talk to you about how you might unpack that a bit differently but certainly there is a space there so that when people hit the newsrooms they're not asking those questions and oh, what do I do if I can't show a picture they're coming with the creativity creativity they need to be able to solve that but also uh, and I think this gets back to something that Robert said where you talk Talking about when you're covering Indigenous affairs. People really have trouble resonating with it. They don't understand it. They just switch off. uh, And it means potentially you're not looking at a bigger picture. And there are often, we we often go for, you know, I I use that term low hanging fruit, just because someone's speaking English articulately does not mean that they are the best person to answer the questions that you have. You need to look broader and you have to look at what potentially lays behind people, because like any people, there are often those of us that have a bigger machine behind us.
6: Jason, I mean, we're getting towards the end of our time, but I was just thinking, given that you've been through New South Wales Aboriginal Affairs and you're the creator of this project, what does the future hold in New South Wales around this question of the role of media in the, in, in the engagement between Indigenous people and government? Where's the track leading? You know, where do we shine the torch and where do we
2: start climbing? Wow, that's a really good question. I mean, I think we have to get better at it, clearly. I mean, what, what the research has highlighted is that we've got a long way to go. But, I, you know, I, I am optimistic. You know, I have uh, friends who work in mainstream media who tell me that things are changing, you know, slowly but surely. Um, and so I, I take faith in that. I think we need to get better at using uh, the media, plug the things that are important. You know, my conversations with journalists, and again, you know, Catherine and others can speak better to this. But I think there is an interest in this stuff, I, I think, but I think also think Catherine and, and Robert are right. It's, it's the way we articulate these things. It's the way we make them accessible to people in a different way. That's what we need to get better at.
6: Thanks. Maybe that's the the pathways that um, our little team of people at UTS can help contribute to. So that would be great. I'm just wondering, is there any final comments from any of you that you'd like to to share with our audience?
3: Look, I'll talk about how much potentially, and it's only, promise, it's a short story, how much um, those conversations have changed. I can remember once being in a newsroom and arguing with a chief of staff, very good man, all right, I learnt a lot from this person, respect him greatly. But the argument was why we should cover the NAIDOC march on Friday, because it was absolutely not relevant to the majority of our viewers. Now, what I know is you'd never have to have that argument today
6: great okay that brings us to the end of our time thank you all all the panellists and thank you all for being here
0: if you found any of this content distressing and feel like you need to talk to someone about it please contact lifeline on 13 11 14 they operate 24 hours a day you can also reach out through their website next time on black stories matter we will be tackling Aboriginal self-determination and independent
1: media. The level of trust from community informs your reporting. It allows you to get that access. It allows you to tell stories accurately and sensitively. But beyond that, there's a level of accountability that is not taught in journalism schools. We are held to such a high standard, and you will see it on Black Twitter every single day. You know, we will get called out if we get shit wrong, as we should. And that level of accountability allows us to go back to our work and make sure that we are putting out the best story possible for our community.
0: We'll be hearing from Gumero woman, Madeline Heyman-Raber, a freelance journalist and media advisor, Wellprey woman, Rachel Hocking from NITV, who co-hosts the flagship show, The Point, and Associate Professor Tanya Dreher from the University of New South Wales Centre for Media Futures. I hope you can join us. I'm Amy Thomas, and thanks for listening to Black Stories Matter. Black Stories Matter is a UTS podcast made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology Sydney, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded. This audio series is based on the book, Does the Media Fail? Aboriginal Political Aspirations, by Amy Thomas, Heidi Norman and Andrew Jakubowicz. You can buy a copy from any good bookstore or order it online at the Iatsis Shop. Just go to shop.aiats. That's A-I-A-T-S-I-S.gov.au. The book is published by Aboriginal Studies Press at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. The Black Stories Matter podcast was made with the support of Aboriginal Affairs New South Wales as part of a strategy to improve the dynamics between Aboriginal people and governments.